0: Tonight I'd like to talk about the path of healing and I'm going to explore it some both from an Eastern or spiritual perspective and also what some of the more uh, authentic principles about healing from the West include because all genuine paths of healing are based on some of the same principles. In a sense, you can consider the spiritual path and any healing that we do as a movement towards wholeness, towards reconnecting with our nature, with the sense of completeness, sense of belonging to all of life. And that when we're not in a state of feeling connected, Of belonging, there's suffering, there's disease. A couple of nights ago on TV there was a show and I only caught pieces of it but it had to do with prophecy. Did anyone see that? It was prophecies made by different psychics as well as some of the prophecies of the great Native American traditions such as the Mayans the Mayans actually summed it up in a way they kind of included some of the themes presented from other people. And their cosmology is that we're, we're going in these cycles and that it's happened before that humans have evolved and developed cultures and technologies and so on. But then what would happen was humans would forget. They'd forget the divine. They'd forget to worship to celebrate, to pray, to meditate. They'd start getting arrogant and selfish and combative. And then the whole thing would kind of blow up in some way, you know. Life would just blow up. People would start dying, diseases, famine, their homes would blow up. And that's already happened. And now the minds say we're going through another cycle and in... Oh, the year 2012, I think it is, that's when it's going to happen again. And it's because humans have stopped feeling that they belong to this earth and in their arrogance have tried to dominate nature. So the Buddha, 2,500 years ago, offered a pretty similar teaching that when we live in, a, in the delusion or in the ignorance that perceives ourselves as separate, as disconnected, we then live lives of grasping, we live lives of aversion, we live lives where we are, in some sense, resisting the flow, and we suffer. Hence, loneliness, fear, shame, we think we're separate. The sense of separation and all that arises out of it is grounded in fear. And when you look close at any process of healing, all the dis-ease, really comes out of this sense of separation, isolation, pain. Like the Mayan prophecy, most of us, after a certain amount of time, of years, of living fear-based lives, where we think we're separate, and then we set these agendas on how to feel better. And our agendas usually have to do with accumulating more, more respect for ourselves, more status, more possessions, more people that like us. And our agendas include resisting what's dangerous or bad, resisting what's painful. We go through life and we try to control things like that. We're kind of navigating, you know, max out on pleasure, minimize the pain until we hit some sort of a crisis. Now, Not each of us has hit a crisis that's all at once and big and dramatic, like a volcano or a hurricane or an earthquake, as in the Mayan prophecy. But the model's the same. There's some sort of a crisis whereby we realize it's not working. We're not happy. We're not fulfilled. We don't feel intimate with other people. Our lives feel small. And then when we really... Face those facts, we turn to the practices and the techniques and the ways that will help us to to let go of the controlling, to stop trying to, to accumulate so much or defend so much. We try out a path where there's more just living it. That is the path of healing. I mean, I don't need to, I could go on a lot, but really, all healing comes from this letting go of all our conditioning to control and letting life be. When we let life be, the natural flow is towards wholeness, integration, well-being. Let me read you a poem. This is Mary Oliver and it's called Journey. One day you finally knew what you had to do and began, though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice, though the whole house began to tremble and you felt the old tug at your ankles. Mend my life, each voice cried, But you didn't stop. You knew what you had to do, though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations, though their melancholy was terrible. It was already late enough, and a wild night, and the road full of fallen branches and stones, but little by little, as you left their voices behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds, And there was a new voice, which you slowly recognized as your own, that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world, determined to do the only thing you could do, determined to save the only life you could save. We all have those voices, the old voices, the fearful voices saying, fix me, defend me, protect me. They keep us day after day, cycling through the same small routines, running from things, running towards things. We all have those voices of fear. It's part of the human condition to be fear-driven like that. And we're all on a journey, as in this poem, to start realizing at some point that we cannot live listening to those voices and really live and have a life that feels full. So we begin listening more deeply. And that's what meditation is. We listen more deeply to that voice, of wisdom, that voice of compassion that allows us to live our moments. There was a new voice which you slowly recognized as your own that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world. So our path is really about saving our life. It's not saving our life in a desperate, grasping way. It's saving our life so we can live our moments. Most of us know that feeling of desperation, that the moments are passing by. And how much are we really here? Right now, how much are we really here for it? Gurjeev talks about how we can't be free until we recognize the prison we're in. I think a lot of what happens to us as we begin to meditate and pay attention is we begin to see our conditioning. We begin to see the prison we're in, the ways that we keep ourselves small, that we stop ourselves from really letting ourselves love each other and love ourselves and love this life. We start seeing that prison So much of the practice is about seeing the ways we perpetuate it by controlling things. When we look closely at our lives, just each day, we find that we spend lots of moments very hooked on trying to make things different. Change ourselves, change people around us, adjust our inner moods. Several weeks ago, a very dear friend of mine entered a treatment facility for an eating disorder. She's a binge eater. And she called me last week, and it was really interesting because she said that something she already knew she started to know more deeply, you know, that one. She was watching watching her patterns and her cycles and she started realizing how her binge eating really was this desperate attempt to control her inner experience. And she described it like this, this is kind of the sequence, that she'd get to feeling this intolerable sense of discomfort or anxiety. And to soothe herself, she would start madly taking in food. It was a way of trying to soothe or comfort this horrible feeling in her body. And in a sense, we think of binging as out of control. At that moment, she felt she was controlling her experience. She was actually in control. She was free to put in as much as she wanted, and she wasn't going to set any limits, and she gave herself permission to control her experience by eating. So there's a sense of being the controller and then of course right on its heels she would become the victim because she'd be the victim of all the shame and the remorse and the guilt and the sick feelings which would make her feel very deficient and bad about herself which would set the stage for more anxiety more intolerable affect and another binge. Control, control, control. Feel horrible, feel feel the sense of being abused by what happens which sets the circumstances for another round of trying to control we all do this we all try to maneuver and manipulate our life and then when we feel the consequences of it get driven into doing more maneuvering and manipulating It's sometimes easiest to see this when we honestly reflect on our relationships with the people that are closest to us. Most everybody I know with the people in their closest circle have all sorts of absolutely compulsive, addictive, reactive codependent behaviors. <laughs> Anyone exempt? <laughs> you don't have to stay tonight if you want. <laughs> right? That's this is common and how do they go how do these patterns emerge for most of us we have when we're sitting from some distance a very wise intention to not be reactive to stay compassionate to stay present to stay open you know we bring that into that's our intention And then what happens? We get into some engagement, right? And then before we know it, something's triggered, and we either act in a judgmental or angry or grasping or controlling way, right? And then what happens is we feel bad about ourselves. We feel contracted and yucky about that. And that sense of deficiency sets the grounds for the next time that something triggers off, and we again do it despite our best intentions it's no less addictive than binge eating or any other drug intake we all are we all go through these cycles of trying to control things and then having it backfire woody allen writes why does man kill he kills for food and not only for food frequently there must be a beverage (laughs) you know violence begats violence it becomes the habit of our lives when we're greedy and we keep grasping that just sets the conditions for more greediness and grasping so one way we try to control things one way we try to control our lives is by acting out in these ways trying to take more eat more have more do more judge more blame more then the other way is we try to shove it under we have these painful or frightening feelings and we try to control them by repressing them those are the two ways acting out or repressing spencer tracy recommends that says just know your lines and don't bump into the furniture You know how that goes? Where we just try to push it under and steer ourselves with creating the least difficulties around us. When we're experiencing our lives as dangerous, when we're experiencing a lot of craving, we don't notice much like if you're on the highway and you're hungry what you're really noticing is when the restaurants crop up or if you have to go to the bathroom when there's gas stations. I mentioned last week that that if you're walking through the woods you can be listening to the sounds of the birds chirping seeing the vibrant green smelling the pines, and yet if there's a spear that's hurtling through the air at you you're not going to do that anymore. All the attention becomes contracted, focused, your behavior becomes avoidant, so to speak, right? So it shifts when when we're living our lives as if we're under a great threat or we need something desperately, we lose our capacity to really pay attention to the life around us. I just saw this in a strange little book. There's a little cartoon, and one woman is saying to Mrs. Lincoln, besides that, or apart from that, Mrs. Lincoln, did you enjoy the show? Sadly, most of our preoccupation is habitual. It's not that there's really a spear hurtling towards us but more it's our habit to expect or anticipate that something bad is going to happen. And many precious life moments pass by while we're busy worrying or planning to avoid pain. So we all have different styles of doing that. One of the benefits of being a therapist is people come in and they tell me about their style of trying to resist life or control life or push life under and it's really great because there's nobody that comes in that i can't somewhere in me go oh yeah that i know that one you know we all do it and we all do it in many many ways sometimes the most clear examples are the most extreme ones how we suffer when we try to control things. And a couple of weekends ago, I went to a conference on abuse and trauma and post-traumatic stress. And in it, the different presenters were describing the experience of somebody that's gone through early life trauma and what happens afterwards. And they described it both from a biophysiological perspective, you know, what really goes on in the body when somebody's traumatized and afterwards, and what happens emotionally. And it was really fascinating because even though they were describing this very extreme profile, it's like I started thinking of the people I knew in my life and mainly moi, and it all sounded very familiar. So let me share with you a little bit about that. What happens when somebody is traumatized? Because we've all been traumatized. Every one of us has experienced in some way a sense of real danger to our emotional or physical beings. Most of us have experienced the real fear of rejection or abandonment. Many of us have been abused emotionally, some physically and sexually. Trauma is pretty universal not everybody is severe as what they were talking about in this conference, but I think you'll agree that there's some, some real similarities on how we all come through it. The key feature of trauma is a sense of helplessness, that there's no control. And the response is to madly try to control your experience. The more unpredictable, the more traumatic, Right? So there's experience of helplessness when somebody's been terribly wounded on some level, and then the whole being, body and mind, scrambles to try to control things. And the main way to control things is to separate, is to push away the experience, to push it away in your memory, to push away your bodily memory. So people that have been severely traumatized are very dissociated from their body and body sensations for as much as they can be, are very dissociated from many emotional states, are very unavailable for close contact with other human beings that might then trigger off all that vulnerability and fear and pain. Typically, people that have been severely traumatized don't feel pain so much physically when they've been hurt. So dissociation is the main feature. Now here's how it goes on a physical level, like anatomically, through your brain. When sensory stimuli comes in, it goes to the thalamus and then to a place called the limbic system or the amygdala. So trauma, something scary, something horrible happens, and this little organ called the amygdala goes, ah! You know and it sets up all these flares you know now if it's not too bad a trauma then this the limbic system passes on the information to a place called the hippocampus which makes cognitive sense out of it so the limbic system is the place where you feel the emotion strongly it's been described and this is way to describe the limbic system as it deals with the four F's feeding fighting fleeing and reproduction (laughs) okay so stuff comes in through the thalamus it goes to the amygdala the amygdala goes ah now if it's not so bad as I mentioned it'll go on through these fibers to the hippocampus which makes a cognitive map and explains things some and then it gets embedded in your memory as a mix of your explanation for what happened and as the feelings if it's very extreme it doesn't happen that way instead when trauma is severe it goes to the amygdala which sets up all these flares like you know emergency emergency and then the fibers that are connected to the hippocampus are impaired and so there's no meaning making that's made there's no math that happens. It just gets stored as this very charged, painful affect. And then what happens is, as you go through life, whatever stimuli comes in re-triggers it because there's no discrimination saying, oh, don't worry, that's not that same murderer that came and attacked you. That's just somebody that has the same kind of eyes. There's no, there's no cognitive discrimination that would help you to know the difference between dangerous stimuli and just anything that re-triggers trauma. So the traumatized person really does everything possible to control this hyperarousal by dissociating. But what happens with all this dissociation is stuff intrudes anyway. So there's helplessness because stuff intrudes and that reinforces the need to control, control, control. And the more you control and the more you dissociate, the more these intrusions set off even more severe trauma, re-traumatizing. You see how the cycle goes? The more you try to protect yourself from it, the more it actually leads you to feeling helpless and at a loss. So on a scale that's not so extreme for most of us, we have undigested pockets of extremely painful experience. All of us do, until we're really healed. And healing has to do with bringing these pockets that are painful, that we don't want to touch, that have shame and fear surrounding them, into awareness. But it's difficult, because we, like anybody that's been traumatized, Organize around not feeling pain. So, what is the Buddha's basic teachings in practice? To begin to allow ourselves to feel what's there. To stop controlling our experience so much, pushing away what arises, to let that be there. Because both Western thera- therapy and Buddhist meditation agree that until you felt fully, these pockets of experience, you are going to be compelled to continually try to control and avoid and stay contracted around them. That until we have an accurate memory and feeling of what's going on, there's no freedom really. We're still in prison. In the most basic way in meditation, our healing comes when we bring to awareness what's been difficult. And rather than experiencing it the same way, because that just re-traumatizes you, it's experienced but held in a space of mindful and compassionate attention. Similarly, in Western therapies, The idea is not to just re-traumatize people by confronting them with their pain, but to connect with the pain, but have a reframed experience where a deepened sense of safety or presence or cognition is available. So that's why some therapies don't work. If all you do is say to somebody, you know, feel your pain, and then you give them some, you know, psychodrama or something to feel their pain, And there's no reframing it's not brought into a bigger context then all you've done is re-traumatized and that happens people go off and do these intense experiential weekends and come back all in pieces because i see people they come into my office they've just been to something that sounded like this great healing event and it got them in touch with their pain but there was no deeper resourcefulness that was also connected with to help with the healing So again, I'm going to compare the West with, with the meditative traditions on, on, healing, on the steps to healing. From the Western perspective and the Eastern perspective, there's two steps. The first step is stabilization, meaning if you are traumatized and filled with fear and confusion, before you can really touch and heal the pain that's there, There needs to be some balancing, some stabilizing, some calming down. Now in Western therapies, this is done a few ways. One way is is with medication. And just to mention, this is a really interesting thing I thought about medication. They found that the antidepressants that that deal with serotonin, that help to increase the amount of serotonin in the body are really good for people that are survivors of trauma. And here's why. Serotonin in some way helps to reestablish the connection through the hippocampus with the cognitive functions. So people that have been traumatized and are on the antidepressants have a little more capacity to bring cognitive awareness to what's going on so they don't immediately experience it as, oh, the same old trauma. There's a little more distance and perspective. So in addition to being an antidepressant, it's good for that they were talking about Prozac as one of the main ones as stabilizing post-traumatic stress and somebody presented a cartoon i want to tell you about and it and its title was if Prozac was there back then and it had a few frames and one of two of them that i liked is they had a picture of Karl Marx on Prozac and he was saying sure capitalism can work at its kinks (laughs) and then they had Edgar Allan Poe and he's looking at a raven and and he says, hello, birdie. <laughs> so they're stabilizing through medication, and then they're stabilizing through the therapeutic relationship, through establishing a sense of safety and protection and security, and through different, teaching different relaxation techniques, Self-hypnosis, a way to kind of gain control of your own inner state of mind in a healthy way. Now, similarly, in meditation, when we come in here and sit down together, the instructions are not, okay, just open the awareness and be fully with what's there. Or they might be just for a moment, but that's not the sequence usually that's taught. Instead, the first thing we teach in Vipassana is Concentration. Concentration stabilizes and quiets and balances the mind. You can't usually just open to mindfulness and presence and full being with what's there if the mind is very confused, very frightened, very distracted. Have you noticed? So what do we do? In each sitting we start we relax some and then using the breath. The breath is usually the main way Coming back again and again to the breath is a way to quiet the mind, to stabilize and create some steadiness to the attention. For some people, if it's hard to stay with the breath because there's so much of a scatteredness, we stay with the whole sense of body sensations, and you can do that. If you're having a hard time concentrating on the breath, just stay with the sense of sensations through the whole body. Or for some people, listening to sounds, Because you'll notice that when you're really listening to sounds, you're not thinking. Our thoughts are really not controlling or taking over. So just getting quiet and listening. These are ways that we begin to stabilize and quiet the attention, to prepare ourselves for what is really the transformative experience of mindfulness. that's step one stabilizing the step two that we talk about is really to be with the experience fully and to reframe it not just to feel it but to feel it in a space of wakefulness now in western therapies it doesn't go as deep it's not as profound as meditation as as with meditation there's ways of contacting what's there you can do it through hypnotherapy or through psychodrama or through uh, bioenergetics, there are many, many strategies of really coming into full connection with those pockets of resisted life. And then they're brought into the fuller context of your cognitive mind or a sense of safety. In hypnotherapy, frequently you draw on your adult resources of, of whatever you as a mature being have grown into to then bring some perspective to the experience. Now, as you know, with meditation, it's much more of a radical reframing. It's not just reframing saying, now you can bring your adult resources to this painful experience and feel better about it, which is one step of providing a bigger context. It's an entire shift in identity, which is, You can bring Buddha nature. You can bring wisdom and compassion and a boundless sense of presence to be with this. So there's a shift, and many of you have experienced it, from being caught inside a wave of experience, inside a wave of grief or fear, to sensing an ocean of being, not to get rid of the wave, not to get rid of that pocket of painful experience, but rather to include it in a larger, more boundless sense of being. This is the basic shift in identity that the Buddha described as liberating us. That the only way that we can heal fear is to sense our being as the ocean that includes it, so there's room for it. For many of us we get motivated to explore this larger more open space of being when we realize how small our lives have become running around listening to the voices of fear that's what motivates us I recently read a survey of elderly people who reported their greatest regret being they'd been too afraid to really pursue their dreams, do what they wanted to do. We all know what that's like, putting off what really matters, because in some way the shoulds and the fears and the immediate demands seem so big and important. Not really living our dreams. Carl Jung talks about the greatest pain that children experience as being in the unlived lives of their parents. The Buddha writes, Fear is always an anticipation of what has not yet come. Our fear and separation are great, but the truth of our connection is greater still. This is what we mean when we talk about bringing the wave of fear into a sense of the ocean of being. The ocean is the connectedness, is our true nature. It's bigger than the wave. It doesn't deny that fear arises. Even when we've done much, much healing, around fear, it still arises, but it's manageable, it's workable, because our sense of who we are is the ocean, is the heart that is big enough to hold the fear. The word bodhicitta, awakened heart, really is the medicine to see clearly, that we are not just a wave, that wisdom of seeing who we really are and the heart that holds that wave is what allows us to be free. Rumi talks about this medicine of the awakened heart that can hold it all as the friend, really simply, really beautifully. He writes, how to cure bad water, send it back to the river, how to cure bad habits, send me back to you. There is a secret medicine given only to those who hurt so hard they can't hope. The hopers would feel slighted if they knew. Look as long as you can at the friend you love, no matter whether that friend is moving away from you or coming back towards you. Sometimes it's very hard to connect with our own hearts when we're feeling afraid or angry or hurt. And we can't really feel that we can hold ourselves with compassion. Although this is what we're moving towards, being able to hold with compassion whatever arises. So all we can do is face in that direction, look towards the friend, whether the friend is moving away from us or towards us. Maybe the most we can do is just say, I have the intention to awaken this heart, to hold with love what's arising. It's my intention. Or to pray. I just wish that I could hold this fear with love. Or to imagine a being that has the space, the heart, to do that. To let ourselves rest in the heart of the bodhisattva, the beings that are very awakened, as a way of connecting with our own awakened hearts. Not to be discouraged if we can't just drop into this sense of boundless compassion when we're feeling fear, just to face the direction of the friend, of the one we love, of the place or space in our own hearts that really can save our lives, literally. The word courage has as its root greatness of heart. Courage can't exist without fear. What courage is, is our response to fear. It's the greatness of heart that is willing to be with fear. It takes tremendous courage to meditate. It really does. To be willing, To sit and be with the life that's here takes courage. And the more deep that willingness is, the more courage there is, the more we wake up. Kazantzakis in Zorba the Greek writes this. This is Zorba speaking. Look, one day I had gone to a little village, an old grandfather of 90 was busy planting an almond tree. What, granddad, I exclaimed? Planting an almond tree? You know, almond trees take a long time to grow. And he, bent as he was, turned round and said, My son, I carry on as if I should never die. I replied, And I carry on as if I was going to die any minute. Which one of us was right, boss? As we let ourselves realize that we love this life, as we really let ourselves know it, whether it's because we really sense we're going to die and it becomes quite precious, or we have the courage to go ahead and live just because we love it no matter whenever we're going to die, when we let ourselves realize that we love this life, we become very willing moment by moment to be with what's here, whether it's painful or pleasurable. It becomes less important what we're experiencing because we more and more are relating to whatever arises with a sense of presence and care. That's who we are, caring presence. And then the weather just happens. We become willing to be with it. You can sense in that a commitment. That willingness is this commitment, like yes, yes to life. Van Gogh writes, until one is committed, there is hesitancy, the chance to draw back, always ineffectiveness. The moment one definitely commits to oneself, then providence moves too. All sorts of things occur to help that would never otherwise have occurred boldness has genius power and magic in it begin it now we all know what that's like when we drop into a deeper level of commitment there's excitement empowerment and a real feeling that we're being true to ourselves a real sense of well-being But it's important to recognize that this path of caring presence is not one of struggling. It's not a commitment that I'm going to take up arms and fight the good fight, rah, 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 you know? It's not a struggle. We're not committing to fighting harder. The struggle doesn't liberate. Struggling doesn't do that because, you know, it presumes that something's wrong, that we're fighting something in ourselves or the world. It's not about struggling. Chogyam Trungpa writes, there's no need to struggle to be free. The absence of struggle is in itself freedom. So when we talk about the path of healing, the principles that both Western therapists and Eastern mystics have recognized, we start with taking this tendency to control things that's so dysfunctional, and using a different kind of intentional controlling to stabilize and calm ourselves. And then we drop control. Our freedom comes when we let go of controlling and simply let life be right this moment. Not trying to make sense, not trying to feel one way, not resisting a painful sensation or grasping after a pleasurable one, but simply deeply allowing life just to be as it is right now. It's a willingness right this moment to breathe in and feel just what's here. To breathe in and say yes to however it is to breathe out and let our love be there for this life. To let our love be there. I'd like to end tonight with a poem called Morning Poem. This is again Mary Oliver. Every morning the world is created Under the orange sticks of the sun, the heaped ashes of the night turn into leaves again and fasten themselves to the high branches. The ponds appear like black cloth on which are painted islands of summer lilies. If it is your nature to be happy, you will swim away along the soft trails for hours, your imagination alighting everywhere. And if your spirit carries within it the thorn that is heavier than lead, if it's all you can do to keep on trudging, there is still somewhere deep within you a beast shouting that the earth is exactly what it wanted. If it is your spirit that carries with it the thorn that is heavier than lead, if it's all you can do to keep on trudging, There is still somewhere deep within you a beast shouting that the earth is exactly what it wanted. Each pond with its blazing lilies is a prayer heard and answered lavishly every morning, whether or not you have ever dared to be happy, whether or not you have ever dared to pray. There is still somewhere deep within you a beast shouting that the earth is exactly what it wanted. We all love this life. We all do. It's a risk to let ourselves know that and feel that. To dare to pray, to dare to love. But that's what we do, and that's why we're here. We're taking the risk to feel life more fully. So the path is gentle, it's held in kindness, with a gradual opening, and yet there's a real sense of courage and willingness that comes with this practice, where we really bring a sincerity, this moment, each moment, to let this moment matter. The only way we can save our lives is to let this moment matter. So let's just take some time now, just for a few moments to sit together silently, if you will, just to sit upright and meditate together.